0: Investment Arbitration Reporter, also known as IA Reporter, is our sponsor for Season 5. IA Reporter is an online service focused on international investment law. IA Reporter's team of expert analysts offer up-to-the-minute coverage of new arbitrations, recent decisions, and notable policy developments. Last year, IA Reporter launched a new content feature, a searchable data set of more than 1,500 ISDS cases. Including party, arbitrator, and counsel information. To find out why the world's leading law firms, universities, and government agencies use IA Reporter for current awareness, due diligence, and conflict checking, visit iareporter.com. Hello and welcome to the Arbitration Station.
1: Is that the main issue of ISDS today?
2: So we cannot invite you all to the next episode.
0: You're the native speaker. It can't be very unique. Unique means one of a kind. It's either unique or it's not. It's like you're, you're either pregnant or you're not.
1: Did you say Gaillard?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. With a D. I should not pronounce the D. I'm getting DCF tattooed on
1: my neck tomorrow, actually. It's a question I'm putting up there. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Arbitration Station. My name is Sadia Bhatti.
0: I'm Brian Kodak And I'm Joel Dahlquist.
1: And we are your co-hosts for another episode of the Arbitration Station podcast, covering both commercial and investment arbitration. 66% serious substance and 33% general ponderings and musings of the arbitration world. And 1% Work happening in our places in our apartments that's why we have some background noise in this episode
2: <laughs> <laughs> yes 1% sanding my walls as the walls i thought they were sanding the floors no 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 they're sanding the walls cuz um we're getting it repainted so Oh, nice. This is this has happened a lot. I, I was just telling you
0: offline that I was speaking at an Uppsala alumni thing last week, and they started drilling downstairs the very second it was my turn to give a presentation, and then went on for 20 minutes, and then they stopped when I had to stop talking, basically. And it's happened a lot.
2: <laughs> it's just some guy who knows you're talking downstairs. And you're
0: like, yes,
3: exactly.
1: <laughs> I feel like it's a good trick in the hearings as well, right? If uh, something... <laughs> Yeah. Oh, oh, sorry. Someone's doing work in my apartment or in front of me. Yeah. Or in the street. Yeah. But it's happening more and more often. I feel like everyone's doing some construction work. So, yes, that's a lot of disputes happening right there. This is the link with arbitration. (laughs)
0: We're coming out of uh, uh, the lockdown today, though, in London, and I hope that, like, because they've been doing construction work all over the city as well, and I think it's been the same in many other cities. It feels like, uh, like, urban areas in general have taken the opportunity now, when it's empty, to just like fix all the roads, build all the houses, do everything. Yes, and hopefully it will be done soon because it's like it's. I'm biking, as you know, as I'm proud of my my biking. There's construction everywhere. It's very. Yes like find a straight road that isn't blocked off by construction. <laughs> it's also
2: very London for that to happen. But we have our final episode of the season.
1: Season finale. Yeah.
2: Um. Thank you guys for an amazing season five. Um, we just checked online and we're up to 83 episodes, which is such, so this would be episode 84. It's such an amazing feat. And thank you for everyone for listening thus far. Um that means we will hit
0: 100 at the end of season 6 hopefully maybe that's actually kind of a distinguished number to end season 6 on aim for episode 100 and then i'm thinking aloud here maybe we will do something special i don't know do a recap or invite 45 people who have been on the podcast or Something fun for episode. We need to commemorate this some way. It's my we need
1: to do this absolutely. 100 episodes is a big deal. Even 83 episodes is a big deal, guys. So it cool.
2: is going from like one episode a week when Joel and I were like powering through a season, and then like now in this new iteration of what we are as a podcast, it's we've grown. We've definitely grown, and you can hear about us and how who we are as individuals on Chris Campbell's podcast, Tales of the Tribunal. Uh, we were all interviewed. Um, it was a great experience, wasn't it? Yeah, very much. And but we all, I think,
0: we're also in agreement that we're uncomfortable talking about ourselves, and that we're not celebrities, or we, you know, we don't justify taking up some time <laughs> on anybody's air. Uh, but it's also an honor at the same time, especially when you look through the other people that Chris has been sitting down with. For those of you. If there are any who have not listened to Tales of the Tribunal, it's a very different and more serious podcast than The Arbitration Station. It's actually an in-depth conversation generally with one or several people from the field. So you actually get to know them beyond the the arbitration exterior and get to know the the person as well. It's a very nice format.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So thanks again for Chris for inviting us and for sharing our stories if you want to hear about us just us not the arbitration element of it then uh please uh yeah we'll link to that interview um that he did with us and uh in this episode so what else is happening guys what are we talking about this episode
0: we're doing kind of a well i guess we we have one really substantive interview and then both the other two segments are sort of like looking through developments and uh, what's been going on lately in the world of arbitration. I guess we're doing the interview first, right?
2: I will be conducting an interview with Uche Anwa-Megbu who is a partner at um, a law firm in Washington DC at Arndt Fox. And he will be discussing his tenure at the United Nations uh, Compensation Commission which was a special commission set up Um, after Iraq's unlawful invasion um, and occupation of Kuwait in the 90s. So it's similar to the U.S.-Iran Claims Tribunal. Um, So he'll be talking about um, an overview of the types of claims brought, his experience there, the reports and recommendations that came out of those claims, and how those were actually paid and enforced. Um, So it's definitely a new type of arbitration dispute resolution mechanism that maybe some of us aren't that familiar with. Arbitration adjacent. like Arbitration adjacent.
0: This season. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and then, Sadia, you will will take us through the next segment.
1: Yes, so we've got a new survey that's out, the Queen Mary International Arbitration Survey 2021. So I'm going to be discussing the results of that one.
2: And then we'll wind it up with Happy Fun Time, which will be 2020-2021, a year in review, highlights uh, during the pandemic.
0: Off the cuff, things that we remember from
2: the last nine months or so. Yes, this definitely goes to our general pondings and musings part of our uh, subject line. Uh, What have you guys been up to before we launch into these segments? Any um, participations in online seminars connecting with the community? I actually saw Gabriel Kaufman Kohler give the Mayor Brown
0: lecture, I think it may be called last week, about the interactions between domestic courts and investment arbitration tribunals, hmm. which a, a wow. favorite topic of mine. And nice. it was, they were doing it. And there, were, there was a panel talk afterwards with a number of, of senior figures, including Dominique Hacher, who is a French judge, yeah. uh, which we may have reason to return to during happy fun time because the French courts are really churning out they are. related judgments. And that was a very good discussion. And they were all at May Brown's office in Paris. So they were all sitting together and then it was broadcast. So it was kind of a new, you know, uh, a step towards normalcy, but still Hmm. uh, a webinar. So it was just interesting seeing them sitting responsibly spaced out, but it was still, you know, closer to a normal uh, seminar than a typical everyone calls in from their living room webinar that we've gotten used to.
2: I um, listened to a lecture on... it was just through some webinar and it was the discussion of the new FDI laws that are taking place in Eastern Africa. Mm -hmm. Um, And there have been a lot of developments in the legislation in Eastern Africa for attracting new foreign direct investment, specifically related to mining um, and other exploitation of natural resources. And, um, the general takeaway for those who didn't have a chance to look into this yet is basically that there is all this new legislation, but that there needs to be the um, political infrastructure behind the legislation to implement it properly and to actually protect the investment once it's actually been um, uh, invested into the country, and so that has to do with you know issues of corruption and and political instability in those regions. That's been kind of plaguing some of those countries for for decades. So um, it was generally and cautiously optimistic, but uh, there's still much more to happen. So that was that was actually really interesting.
1: Was that part of the London Dispute Weeks? Seminars?
2: It was. It wasn't officially no, but I you know I guess it was uh, London Dispute Week adjacent. Uh, Because it was was last week, so or two weeks ago, so Um, I haven't had a chance uh, to tap into the London Disputes Week, but it is happening, and so um, I. It happened. It happened. It happened. It happened. It 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 was last
1: week. Yeah, no, I have to confess because I've just been completely, um, completely. Uh, underwater (laughs) I can't even find the expression uh, because of work so I have been a hermit I I've not looked at all the. I know there's been so many nice conferences organized last week and I I missed the London disputes week but there were tons of conferences and I think uh, a part of them you can watch them online so we'll try to link up those um, in this episode yeah they
0: were recorded
1: oh I
2: actually did see one from London disputes week um it had to do with um investment arbitration in Latin America Um, and it talked about not only the developments in Latin America but also the differences between how Latin American lawyers um, conduct arbitrations both as arbitrator and counsel and also experts and so they got into this interesting discussion there was an expert witness who was there um, speaking about um, certain um, procedural issues related to experts that differ between uh, kind of an expert coming out of a Latin American jurisdiction or council um, hmm. cross-examining an expert from, so hot tubbing and these types of things and how those can differ based off the background of uh, council um, specifically coming from Latin America. So that was, that was good. That sounds very interesting.
1: Great. Yeah. Uh, well, when
0: we are on the topic here, I have a, some log rolling as well because I'm speaking next week. Ah. At a Seminar organized by Volterra Fiera hmm. about UK, eu member state bit's and their fate post acmea like the oh. treaties that were intra-eu bits and then now after brexit presumably are not mm-hmm. no longer intra-eu bits because the uk is no longer uh, an eu member state there mm-hmm. are some different views about what to do with those treaties and the extent to which they stay in force and how they are hit by the acmea decisions so i'm going to talk about that uh, on a panel together with two other people including uh, anna villanova Who's with the Czech Ministry of Finance, which I mentioned because the EU Commission and m- m- many EU member states have a differing view of this compared to the the prevailing one in the world of arbitration. So I look forward to some. Sounds some
2: controversial. Talks. Are you gonna are you taking a specific stance? Or are you just giving kind of the academic overlay? I
0: uh, I am not gonna ruin everything, but I I am fairly agnostic about this. Okay. I am not gonna go in guns blazing, saying one way or the other. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> but I think it is interesting, and I think it is also interesting because we have the ECT as well, mm-hmm. uh, which obviously the EU Commission thinks, says, argues is not applicable, use usable in intra-EU disputes. But what about the UK and you know the the various agreements that the U member states had when the UK was still in the EU member state. We'll we'll explore this on Thursday the twenty something, ninth. I can't okay. remember. Okay.
1: We'll we'll link it also in this episode just to yeah,
2: make lots sure. Lots of links exactly. the
0: details.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's great.
2: All right. Well, welcome back. And we are here with a guest for our final, this is actually, we're um, recording the finale. So this is the final episode of season five. So we're very happy to have you with us. I have Ucheora on Wamegbu. How how did I do?
3: Very well, very well, I must say. (laughs) (laughs) Better than most...
2: (laughs) I practice. Um, you're an international attorney at Arndt Fox in Washington, D.C., and you are part of the firm's international arbitration and dispute resolution practice. Um, I've read through your um, decorated accolades and and bar admissions. Uh, you, funny enough, you have a connection to England and Wales. You you passed the bar there, and uh, also Nigeria and in D.C. where you are um, where you're sitting now. And you previously worked at Ixit, but. What I have you here today is something that most listeners don't know about, and that's the United Nations Compensation Commission, um, a specialist commission that was created in the 90s. And we have you here today to enlighten us um, on what this commission was about. And and I really want to get into the, the nuts and bolts of how the commission was created and everything. But... Um, before we get into the nuts and bolts, can you just set the stage for us a bit and um, let us know when and how the circumstances in which the commission was created?
3: Sure. Uh, thanks a lot, Brian. It's, it's, uh, it's an honor and a pleasure. Uh, just a quick uh, correction before Oh, we... yes. <laughs> I, I, was, uh, I qualified as a solicitor in England, uh, not as a barrister. Not so as, as a barrister. Yeah, but uh, barrister, solicitor in Nigeria, uh, uh, UK solicitor uh, and so on.
2: Is it similar to the UK in that you have to? It's different courses and qualifications to to sit for the bar in Nigeria. Uh,
3: well, in, in Nigeria is a fused uh, is a fused uh, profession, so that okay you um, you know by the time you're called to the bar, you're also a solicitor.
0: I see. Must I be, see. You know,
3: must, yeah, uh, we've got a four a four year uh, LLB program, which trains you to be a solicitor, and then you need to do another year to be called to the bar. So that I by see. the time you're done with the five years, you, uh, you are both. Yeah. a bit agree. like here in the U.S., where you know there is no, no, not much. Well, there's no formal distinction between advocates and
2: uh, exactly
3: the others. Yeah.
2: I see. All right. Well, thank you for the correction. But now get you on um, something that you are an expert on, which is this UNCC. Right, right.
3: Yeah, the UNCC is, um, is a very unique, uh, very unique uh, program. Now, the background to that is um, that in 1990, Iraq invaded and occupied Kuwait. And uh, for those who uh, would remember, the um, the rest of the world came together under the auspices of the United Nations Security Council to find a way to, uh, you know, to find a way around this. The Allied forces uh, were there fighting on the side of uh, Kuwait to liberate Kuwait. Now, one of the conditions of the ceasefire uh, was that uh, Iraq um, would accept liability for all uh, the. Um, Direct losses from the invasion and occupation, so all the damage resulting from from the uh, inv- invasion or occupation, uh, right. Iraq agreed to be liable for. And so that that was one of the one of the uh, conditions before the ceasefire could occur. So that led to the creation of the uh, compensation commission. So Iraq, having admitted liability the Commission was set up to uh, basically perform a fact-finding function on determining which uh, claims uh, or which damage uh, directly arose from the invasion and then assess how much uh, those uh, people should be paid. So that's that's roughly the, the background to it
2: right and and how did they find these claimants or these claims? I, I know there's categories of claims, and maybe you can go into a bit of that, but how how would you know if your claim was valid or w- within the auspices of this commission?
3: The, it was all done through governments okay. so that you know you couldn't you, there, there were no uh, there, there was nobody filing uh, directly with the the UNCC. So claims were filed through governments, and then different governments had different programs on how to, you know, how they um, how they reached out to their population, how they reached out to and collected the claims, and then did the the initial screening before they submitted to the to the UNCC. Now, of course, the countries that were closer to the uh, theatre of, uh, of war uh, right. had, you know, they had more more uh, claimants are more, um, yeah, people claiming. And then uh, a country like Kuwait had a very highly sophisticated, elaborate um, method for uh, collecting these claims and filing them. And in the end, I think there were claims from over about 100 countries. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah.
2: So, can we take a step back to the organization itself? Um, how was this commission um, organized, and what role when you were there during your tenure there? What what were you specifically working with?
3: Now, that's uh, the uh, the commission was um, uh, that that it was. I found it really fascinating. That was my first uh, foray into the uh, international uh, quote unquote disputes world. Uh, when I joined the UNCC, I think the. commission Mission was um, the commission was must have been like uh, probably like 20 people or something less than 30, and uh, and by the time I left there were over 300 people there. Oh, wow. now, <laughs> yeah, and the, um, the 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 structure grew with uh, with time. Um, the uh, you know somewhere in the middle of it all, the the Security Council decided that they were going to throw as much resources at this so that the whole thing would be, would be wrapped up as quickly as possible. They didn't want this to be another, um, another big UN bureaucracy, and so it was it was packaged that way and and uh, to achieve its function. Now. The um, the secretariat was divided into um, into different teams to address the different categories of uh, of claims. There was a huge uh, IT uh, support. Now, when I joined the UNCC, um, th- that was when you know email was still a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> it is an interesting aspect to this, definitely. Right, right, but and then you can imagine also at this time there were you know all these claims and they were being are being computer, computerized and so you know every it was it was a fascinating period and um, there were also accountants on staff loss adjusters on staff it was and it was um it was a full complement of uh, of um, talent that were pulled together to have this thing done now there were over 60 uh, uh, 60 countries represent, represented on the staff and then quite a few people in there like me who were who were dual nationals or somewhere th- had three nationalities. And so if you counted the nationalities, there were over 120 nationalities represented in the staff. Wow. I didn't, every, the work was fascinating. The environment was, was really fascinating and um, the work got done. Um, I think I... <laughs> the, the, yeah no but
2: then and then there was so then the uh, they had the panels of commissioners as well right there were 19 absolutely
3: so, so i'm sorry yes i just i started with the secretary with no, the no 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 as you said secret, the, the, the secretary was there of course only to support the the you know the the work of the panels of commissioners and then there was a governing council the governing council was the policy making um arm of the of the whole structure And the Governing Council uh, was made up of the members any time of the Security Council. So whatever governments were there on the Security Council were also represented on the Governing Council. Uh, So you had five permanent members and then the other ones who were rotating in and out every every two years. Um, So they were there. The panels of commissioners were the ones who effectively wrote the awards and uh, de- determined or decided the, the, uh, the claims mm-hmm. and then presented to the governing council at a, um, as, as, as uh, reports and recommendations. And when approved by the governing council, then they were ready to be paid. Now, the, uh, one of the unique things about this structure was that the, the secretariat was very involved you know so that um, a lot of work was being done by the Secretariat but it had to, you know but with the with the um, blessing of the of the uh, the panels of commissioners so that uh, because there, there was so much work to be done in such a short time right and so you know there were these very well staffed teams that were put together to support each each um, each panel and um, and is that into that yeah. fact
2: finding investigation exercise is that what the support was for
3: absolutely you know like the the um the secretariat would do the initial review of the of the uh, of the claims and then present them to the uh, to the panels who then uh made the final decision on how how um, how it would
2: proceed. Can you give us a, um, a flavor of some of these claims? I know there were um, several categories and they were categorized by ABCDE. So uh, what yes. types of claims were being brought?
3: Well, there were they ranged from claims by individuals on the one end, you know like the initial the initial uh, category A claims were claims by people who had to leave the other uh, Iraq Kuwait because of the war. And okay. there was a flat, uh, so they just needed to provide uh, basic proof that they had to leave at that time, and they received a flat uh, amount of compensation. I believe it was 2500 per person, or uh, for a family, $5,000. So that, that, was, that was that. And then okay. uh, there were claims for personal injury, uh, then there were claims for... Uh, uh, personal losses under a hundred thousand, and then above a hundred thousand. So you know these included, you know, the the the, the, the for instance, uh, for experts who were living in the region who uh, fled with just the the what they had on their back. You know, personal property in the house, and then there were businesses that were that were affected, destroyed. Um, right. Then, uh, yeah, and so, and then you tell the other end where you have embassies that were mm-hmm. that were destroyed, and then claims for environmental damage. Now, one of the um, the with the with the business claims, they were also broken down into so many different categories. The first one that I worked on, for instance, was claims by airlines and shipping companies and road transport operators. Who were affected by the um, by the invasion, and so you would have, you know, all the major airlines in the world who were flying into the region, mm-hmm. um, but who had to divert. Uh, first of all, they, a lot of them lost business, and so they claimed for loss of business, and then they also claimed for increased cost of uh, doing business, which included increased cost of fuel because they were having to fly to divert. Uh, um, and fly longer routes increased cost of insurance. Right. And then another set of claims that I I worked on was claims of uh, insurance companies and banks. You know, some of these insurance companies had to pay out, um, uh, pay out on um, on cover that they had provided, so they were making claims. Um, the one that really sticks to mind is a claim of the, the Egyptian worker the, of the Egyptian workers okay. who. Were in Iraq. There were, I mean, that was uh, that was quite something. There were, there were almost a million of them uh, who lost the deposits that they had made into Iraqi banks were transferred to to um, Egypt. Um,
2: were these the wages that they had earned while working in?
3: Yes, these were migrant uh, okay. workers. These were migrant workers, and you know we're talking about anything from twenty dollars that they were sending to their families. To, right. But but the um, the system was <clears throat> had been developed over the years, so you know they they were entitled or they were allowed to to remit a certain percentage of their of their uh, wages monthly okay. to back to back to Egypt, and it was such a the volume that, you know, the whole, a whole structure was put in place. So they the transfer could only be done through certain banks mm. and received uh, at certain banks in in Egypt. Now, when the invasion occurred and uh, the embargo was put in place, everything froze uh, because, you know, these funds were not necessarily just going straight from, from Iraq, to Egypt, they were going through correspondent banks, uh, especially in, in New York. Ah, oh, okay. So that so that when the you know when the uh, borders came or when the embargo came uh, uh, slamming down, there were funds stuck all over the system, in place. Okay. So, but then, but then on the other side of the story is that when Iraq was accepting liability for the direct losses uh, uh, that occurred as a, as a result of the invasion, that one of the exclusions was that the loss could not have been as a result of the embargo. So with these Egyptian workers, the question became What caused? what was the direct cause of their loss? Was it the invasion or was it the embargo? Because if it was the embargo, then the the USCC didn't have jurisdiction. Um, oh, I see. Yeah, so uh, it, it was, um, so was, it was- that Was that a separate determination
2: from the commissioners? Because I was reading the report of that specific one and I didn't see any causation analysis by by the commissioners in that report. Was that separate? it separate?
3: Yes, um, because okay. I believe what, what you saw. Oh, uh, I don't know why. I, I, I need to contact the USC for this. But what you saw is the is the um, is the merit recommendation. Yes. The um, and I can I can I've, I've got I've got a copy of the jurisdictional. Oh please, <laughs> yeah, because that, that's where the that's where the analysis uh, happens uh if basically what was <clears throat> it was decided that um funds that were deposited uh from July yes sorry so they, they they couldn't be they couldn't be as a result of the embargo and they could not be old debt okay and there was some there was some backlog anyway because of the because of the constraints that Iraq was feeling because over uh, uh over the um the years that it had been involved in this war with with Iran so that that was already putting pressure on on oh, Iraq's um uh, foreign exchange um stock and so there was some back there was some backlog so with these with these with these uh with these uh deposits were they not being transferred because they were they had been caught up as in that backlog or in which case they were not, as a result of the invasion, or were they not being paid because they had been caught up uh, in the uh, in the embargo? So there was a a kind of a uh, a tricky uh, window there to to navigate, and the commissioners concluded that funds that were deposited um, by July. Mm-hmm like a month before the invasion occurred would have been expected, reasonably expected to have been uh, paid like about a month later on. So right. Yes, not, I read that.
2: Because yeah. I, I saw that time stamp that they were kind of limiting the claims to. And I was like, I didn't really understand why, but this that yeah. gives it much
3: more context. So that's, that's what that was about. And uh, yeah.
2: So in this specific set of claims, I... I when I was doing the reading and it was this is going back to your point on the technology developments that were available to to the secretariat at the time, but they were talking about exchanging forty two or ninety-two, I forget what the number was, diskettes of, yeah, of information.
3: Was... <laughs> so were they sending you like floppy disks of Yes, 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 yes. That's that's what we're <laughs> that's what we're working on. I was the one it's it's um, it's interesting because the you know, there was a, a decision taken. To keep this to keep this small and contained, you know that's that's why there was the MOU signed at the beginning because otherwise it could have consumed the secretariat. Yes. Uh, effectively, this is, um, you know, if and Iraq was arguing that they should be treated as individual claims, in which case you are looking at almost a million individual claims with individual uh, 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 forms, and uh, right. you know it would have just it would, so so the way it was done. Eventually, it was just myself with a um, with an assistant uh, going through these rooms of paper. That was when I, I first started learning Arabic because, you know, at, at some point, my assistant would get so tired. And if I needed to keep going, uh, you know, I needed to figure out what my one to 10 in Arabic. All right. <laughs>
2: <So>. <laughs> at least get the numbers.
3: Right, right. So I mean, th- in those days, uh, you know, it wasn't possible to do to do word search and and, and uh, number search. This was the early days of word processing, at least for non uh, non techies like like myself. So it was.
2: But I was yeah. impressed at, at the level of detail, and you know, they were throwing out claims that didn't have evidentiary support, and so mm-hmm. you definitely did not um, shy away from that the work that needed to be mm-hmm. done.
3: No, we had to. We had to do that. Yeah. You know, we, yeah, because the be, the jurisdictional uh, the jurisdictional uh, quote unquote decision narrowed it down enough that we were then able to uh, verify, uh, you know, line by line the um, the the claims that could be, you know, that could be compensated. And
2: I, I think in those that, those specific set of claims, it was um, eighty four million that uh, around eighty four million that they gave out. Ultimately, and, yes. And and so where does that? How did that become to be paid? And so where did the money flow? And how did it get eventually
3: to the workers? Well, uh, the again, just like the way the claims were filed, mm-hmm. uh, claims came, came claims came through through governments. And okay. so, so uh, compensation was, was again paid uh, through governments. So the government would get notified of, uh, you know, what claims had been awarded and what amounts, and then the government had uh, six months within which to effect payment. Okay. And um, three months after that, within which to, refer, to return the money to the commission if, they, if for any reason they couldn't make payment. Oh, I see. Yeah, and
2: and how? And then would they have to prove that they the payment had been
3: supplied exactly. to the right
2: individual? Right. Yeah,
3: yeah. Um, well, they they that that's that's a whole that's a whole different <laughs> <laughs> subject. But but um but a system was put in place which everybody was was comfortable with, uh, uh, with which the government would have to. To show that the funds had been dispersed. Now, the governments were also allowed to deduct. I believe it was a maximum of three uh, percent for their admin.
2: Uh, oh, I see. Yeah.
3: Charges. So yeah.
2: And I I've seen references mostly to that these are reports or recommendations, and then yeah. I see in other references they're called awards. Um. Did it become? A, how? What's the transition to becoming an award? Well,
3: I mean, no. There were never. There were never awards in the. You know, in the sense that we understand it in the the uh, arbitration community. Okay. Um. They. There were reports and recommendations of the panels of commissioners, and then uh, they they became decisions of the governing council. Uh, you know, when you talk about when you talk about awards, you're talking about enforcement and all. You that. know, that's mm. this is not the uh, uh, these were these were. Uh, I mean, you could even call them like admin dec- administrative decisions. And okay. So, I mean, you. Uh, I don't know that you uh, could have gone to court to enforce. it. <laughs> yeah, that, that's what I was wondering. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and then so.
2: Where is the commission now? Has it complete, has it signed off and and ended or are there any kind of lingering? Interesting.
3: The, um, so I, you know, I believe it was back in 2005 when things started to really wind down. Mm -hmm. Um, But what was left was the, well, there there were two things. Uh, left one was the uh, uh, payments because you know when when the, uh, the the compensation was awarded and approved and all that payment was only made uh, as far as funds were available now we can touch on how funds become available um, so the commission having finished reviewing claims still had to be there to to uh, make sure that claims were paid and that you know Make sure that those payments were affected on the other on the other end. Mm-hmm. So that's one. The other side of the uh, of the work was that when the environmental uh, awards were uh, environmental uh, claims were were reviewed um, about I believe it was like four point two billion dollars oh, wow. uh, was was awarded. For environmental damage. Now, uh, this was to four uh, countries. Uh, Kuwait received about three billion dollars. Wow. Uh, Saudi was one point two. Jordan was like six hundred million, and then, and then um, Iran got a small uh, amount. Now, but these funds, when these funds were awarded, I believe it's the first time, at least from my research, the first time in international law where compensation was being awarded with, uh, with strings. So mm-hmm. you couldn't just take the money and go and spend uh, as, you, as you wished. They were awarded for uh, very specific projects. And so the UNCC um, with, I think it was at the, the request of Iraq, because there were so many unknowns in this scenario. Of course. Uh, so at, at the request of Iraq, a follow-up mechanism was put in place to monitor how these funds were being used, you know, to make sure that they were being used for the uh, particular projects for which they had been awarded. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you talk about environmental damage, again, you know, when the... When the uh, Iraqis were, were retreating from, from Kuwait, they set ablaze um, so many oil wells. I believe there were over over um, 700 of them. Oh, wow. When you talk to people in Kuwait, they'll tell you that for six months, you couldn't see the sky. You know, it was, the whole place was burning. And um, the carcinogens were released into the air. The, yeah, there was... Uh, the again, this was a there was a massive effort. There, there is a there are interesting movies even on YouTube on on this, uh, because the efforts to put out the fire were from all over the world. You know, people came from everywhere with all sorts of technology, to, and part of what happened there was that, you know, all these chemicals and the uh, water being used to put out these incredible fires mm-hmm. um, seeped into the uh, aquifers and polluted uh, groundwater supply, which is in, which is a limited supply in the, in the area because this of is a desert. Of course. Um, so, you know, part of the compensation was to clean up the groundwater. Uh, part of it was to clean up the things that you could see till today. There are still lakes of oil, huge swaths of uh, uh, the desert in Kuwait that are covered by by oil that spilled um even the movement of uh, refugees you know the mm-hmm. whole place was was in a, in a bit of an environmental mess and so so the uncc was there they created this 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 um, other unit to monitor follow up on how how these projects are being implemented oh i see right so uh now, that, again, kind of uh, wound down in 2014. And reports are still being submitted by the governments on the on these environmental claims, but once a year mm-hmm. um, They probably will continue to be sent to the Security Council when the UNCC completely wraps up, because I believe there are like three people there now at the UNCC, and while they are doing <laughs> All they are doing is uh, uh, paying the uh, remaining compensation that's left, and then receiving these reports that are submitted annually on the environmental.
2: Is this from the uh, disbursements of the original three billion that was allocated to, or are these on top of what was originally? Uh, uh, uh,
3: sorry, which one now? The
2: um... you said that uh, Kuwait was. Allocated or um, recommended to be paid to about three billion. So that these claims that are basically. coming in now is that to be taken from that three billion or?
3: Okay, sorry, I think I may have mixed up things then. Okay, the, <laughs> the the three billion for um, uh, uh, was for environmental claims. Right. That's 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 been paid. Oh, I see. Okay, that's been paid. The projects are going on now, and every year Kuwait more. Has to file a, uh, a, a has to file a report to the UNCC on how you know They've how that project is going. I see. I see. Now, next to that is the remaining um, uh, the remaining forty seven billion dollars that Kuwait was awarded
2: mm-hmm. uh,
3: for for all the other claims, right? Mm-hmm. And that's being that's being paid uh that's continued to be to be paid uh what's remaining there now i believe it's like 1.7 billion probably to finish this year or next year
2: wow and where, where are these funds coming from it comes from the uncc the
3: the funds come from from what's called the compensation fund okay now Again, if we go back to the origin of the UNCC, which is Resolution 687 of the uh, Security Council, you know, there was a ceasefire and the Iraq's uh, acceptance of liability. Uh, One of the other conditions was that a compensation fund was going to be created. Mm -hmm. And the compensation fund uh, would be uh, populated or funded uh, from uh, proceeds, of Iraq's oil sales. I see. Smart. Okay. So, if you recall back then, um, you know, there was a huge embargo on mm-hmm. Iraq. They could only sell, uh, you know, they, they were only allowed to sell oil and petroleum products um, to buy essential foods and medicine and to uh, fund the compensation fund. Mm mm-hmm. So that's the whole oil for food program back then. That's what this is about. Oh, right. Yeah. So initially it was 30%. So Iraq's oil sales um, would be made and it had to go through the UN. 30% mm-hmm. immediately would go to the compensation fund. Um, and then the remaining would be used to, to pay for essential foods and medicines. And so for the longest time well so so that's where the compensation was being uh being paid uh to the um uh to the uh, claimants right now the after some years the um the percentage uh the, I, I believe there was a time it dropped to 25% and then it dropped to uh 5% and then uh, during the last uh, financial crisis, Iraq uh, um, requested a suspension. Okay. And by this time, Saddam was no longer in the picture. Right. And so they were granted um, a certain uh, period of uh, suspension. Uh, but now the uh, the payment has restarted.
2: I see. I mean, that's a... I, that seems to be a very logical and quite ingenious way to to create the fund and to make these payments without completely making you know debilitating Iraq and and their progress. But that I mean this this is fascinating. I'm really happy that we we touched upon this even though it is arbitration adjacent it is still um, <laughs> it's still dispute resolution mechanisms in the international plane and I think it's uh, very worthy of of being touched upon. so I really appreciate you talking about no, the, yeah one um,
3: more thing yeah one more thing <laughs> yeah the well the link that i was able to make in the uh, uh because when when i left exit i went to advise kuwait on how they would set up the uh their follow-up program for the environmental for these environmental claims i think because it, it had to be done in a certain in a certain way there were some funds are being uh, withheld almost like performance bonds which would be released um so in doing that work, I began to see some parallels mm-hmm. with the with the um, would say uh, international arbitration, but especially investor-state arbitration, as it relates to huge, large infrastructure projects. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, you know, I had a conversation back then with uh, Professor David Caron yes, um, of uh, King's College, um, on. How? Yeah, I first met David at the at the UNCC.
2: Um, oh, interesting! Right.
3: And by the time we were having this discussion, he was uh, dean at the uh, at King's College. And that discussion developed or evolved into a PhD thesis, which I wrote on, on this subject. Oh, I see. And so the question so the question is, using the UNCC formula, is it? Possible to establish a follow-up mechanism for qualifying investor-state arbitration awards,
2: mm-hmm.
3: and um, I've gone into great lengths to argue that it is possible. It's not. It's not only possible; it is desirable uh, because that's one way to kind of help uh, strengthen the system by bringing us back to to um, the very essence. Of what investor-state arbitration is about,
2: mm-hmm.
3: which ultimately is about uh, creating a favorable env- environment for um, the free flow of um, of cross-border investment, which is required for the um, for the economic uh, viability of of uh, countries. Um, so, if investor-state arbitration tribunals are able to focus a little bit more. On non-pecuniary damages, mm-hmm. um, it would actually uh, in, help improve the envir- the the, the, uh, the investment environment mm-hmm. because then the focus is no longer on a big payday. It will take the focus back to um, back to what the you know what the investment is about. Yes.
2: Would you also be advocating then a return to kind of diplomatic protection?
3: No. Okay.
2: <laughs> no. Because I no, was no, thinking, no, no. you know, it, it, the the reason why I think the UNCC was so effective is because it had to go through the states and implement right. it downward. Yeah. So that's why that's
3: why I was wondering. No, I mean, no, 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 no. I think it's um, this is something that would be purely party driven. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it would depending on, of course, the one of the parties would be a state. Uh, mm-hmm. But the other party would be um, would be a non-state actor, mm-hmm. and um, so it, it it would only um, it would only it could only be effective if both sides are uh, invested and engaged enough.
2: Yes, and I think in a a previous episode of the season, we discussed investor state arbitration and mediation, uh, being involved in kind of um, interim stages of the arbitration. I think in that mediation would be a great time to raise these um, non-pecuniary resolutions that you could find. Yeah. Um, Yeah, and there is a lot of overlap. I mean, you see some of these names of the commissioners in the UNCC that are big arbitrators in the investment arbitration world, so.
3: Oh, definitely. Yeah, and a lot of those names also came from the uh, Iran-U.S. claims tribunal before of that. Course. <laughs> <It's> of course, of course. It's a bit of a continuum.
2: Well, I'm glad you interjected that last point, because I think that is um, a great um, overlap and a call to action as well. And maybe we can link your, your thesis to, uh, in the subject of this episode, if it is published online.
3: Well, I have been promising myself to to do some serious scrubbing. Okay. I, <laughs> we can backdate. Before, it. We can backdate. before before I unleash it on the world, <laughs> on the unsuspecting world. Well, we'd uh, be happy I, I, to
2: have you back on to to discuss the the findings. Well, thank you. Thank, thank you. you so um, much. I appreciate it.
1: So the Queen Mary International Arbitration Survey, the last one, guys, was in 2018. So we have a new one now, 2021. And this one was called, there was a specific theme to it, Adapting Arbitration to a Changing World. So what do you think this was in reference to, a changing world?
2: Um, Space
0: exploration. (laughs) Yeah, I was thinking, so Brian was going to say the Kardashian and Kanye West... (laughs)
1: divorce yeah. <laughs> no that's a good one what are we
2: gonna do after the divorce of kenya it's a changing world what
1: about mix it no one's talking about mix it it's been such a long time Oh, Post God.
0: Oprah interview. We have to survey every arbitration lawyer. <laughs> to they react.
1: Well, it did not talk about the KK divorce, nor did it talk about Mexit. Um, it talked about the pandemic a little bit, of course. You will see the impact of that. Uh, the environmental um, issues, of course, that we've all been discussing about. Diversity, big topic, big still. Big topic, um, information security and technology. So these are the big topics that were uh, mentioned. Uh, A few words before I dive into the results. Uh, It was conducted from October 2020 to March 2021. So I think it's um, that the the people who conducted the survey from Queen uh, Queen Mary University and Whiting Case had trouble with you know the period and and determining when they should do the survey because of, of course we were in the middle of the pandemic. But this was the period where they conducted the survey. Sixty percent of the respondents, the respondents here are the people who answered the survey. Okay,
0: said <laughs> it's they not, have not, not respondents states not
1: respondent <laughs> states because we keep <laughs> talking about states. Uh, said they have been personally involved in more than five international arbitrations over the past five years. Um, so that's the huge chunk of the respondents. Um, then you have 43% were counsel, 15% full-time arbitrator, 7% in-house counsel, private sector, 2% in-house counsel, the government public, uh, public, uh, sector, um, 11% were arbitrator and counsel in equal proportion and 5% were arbitral institution staff. And then that left with 17%, which was others, which would be you, Jewel, I yes, guess. Yes, I was
0: going to say. <laughs> maybe institutional uh, staff, depending uh, yeah,
1: on. Yeah, you you were, I don't know if you would. Yeah, academic slash student slash secretary to tribunals slash. I'm generally
0: comfortable in the category other.
1: Other, okay. <laughs> I think it also includes third-party funders, et cetera. So okay. it is a huge chunk, yeah. yeah. But um, yeah, I, I was just mentioning the, the fact that, you know, 60% of respondents said they had been personally involved in more than five international arbitration over the past five years. And then it goes in, you know, it's like, how many more arbitrations are you involved in? And it goes, there are other numbers, but it's important because I think that we mention that a lot of those, you know, people taking their survey are within the arbitration community itself, Right so when i when i present a survey to some people who are not practitioners because i I give classes to for example the mba students at the business schools to talk about arbitration they Uh don't know it's like an introduction to arbitration and i give the figures of the survey and they're like well you haven't served me for example if i would tell you if i would prefer arbitration or litigation you know it's a um that that's that's a that's a point that that I think needs to be mentioned.
0: Can I, um, before you move on, so that, can Because I, I see on the video, is that the exit convention in French that you have prominently displayed in your bookshelf? Just
1: <laughs> as, as just it
2: happens, out.
1: <laughs> yes, because oh. believe it or not, there are some proceedings happening in French, um, and, uh, and you I, just I, need
0: it in, in in display in your camera so that all, No, I just all...
1: have it here because I use it all the time. So it's like at my hands, it's yeah, like I, also have,
2: textbooks,
0: like. I also have
1: your book, Jewel, it's somewhere around here, where's your book? Well, oh it's gosh, here it is, from Listen, from it's right front. here.
0: Oh yeah, I, I can almost see that there's a book there, yes. <laughs> okay. Yep, please carry on, sorry, I just wanted to- No,
1: of course, <laughs> that's fine, no problem at all. Um, also, uh, one thing to mention is, is that it was the widest ever pool of respondents this year with uh, 1,218 questionnaire responses. Uh, from 29 different countries. Um, Hmm. So anyways, I just wanted to to give some flavor to what the survey was about before getting in there. No surprises for the first point, international arbitration is the respondent's preferred method of resolving cross-border disputes for 90% of respondents, either on a standalone basis or in conjunction with ADR. That's not, are you guys surprised with that? I'm not really surprised with that.
0: No, no. this is, uh, you said this is the community responding. This is
1: the community responding. to be
0: pro-arbitration.
1: Exactly, so people who are outside the community might be like, what, really? Okay, but this this is the community response. Now, one thing that was interesting, I mean, there's been a lot of interesting points, but this one was the first one. Top five seats for arbitration. Now, I don't know, have both of you already seen the survey? Because it's not fun if I'm going to quiz you on this.
0: You you can quiz. When it was published. I I, I have the memory of a much older person.
1: OK, so do you remember the 2018 top five seats?
0: Um, No. (laughs) If you
2: can't remember the 2021 ones, you (laughs) can't (laughs) remember
0: Not exactly. I remember it was, I mean, London, New York, and Geneva, I think were all on top five in 2018.
1: That's right. And that's still true for 2021, but the order has somewhat changed. So oh. the first seat now is, and you know, we were talking about Brexit and how that would impact London as the first seat. Do you think it has impacted London?
2: No. Yes. I think it's no, it's
1: still number one. It's still number one. It's Queen number Mary
2: one. survey. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, it's true. Very good point. So London is number one. Number two is Singapore. Oh, yeah. It's not Paris anymore.
2: <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> no-
1: <laughs> number three, still no Paris. Still no Paris, guys. It's Hong Kong. Mm. And then, finally, we have Paris and then Geneva.
2: What is <laughs> Stockholm? Yeah, where is Stockholm?
1: Ah, uh, Stockholm isn't there, but it's not in the top five. Let me see. Mm.
2: Do, do yeah. they give criteria of how they determined top
1: uh what well what do you mean like uh, what we thought was the how
2: do you make how how is number one number one
1: well it's what are you it was the question was what are your uh or your organization's most preferred seat oh, and then okay. there's a separate question on how would you choose the seat and then, but this this is the response. So Stockholm, just to respond to your question, is 6% of response answer to Stockholm. So it's the ninth preferred seat. So it's London, uh, number one, Singapore, number two, Hong Kong, number three, Paris, number four, Geneva, New York, and Beijing, same, same. Shanghai, Stockholm, and then Dubai. And in fact, London, Singapore, I'm looking at it now, is the same number, 54%.
2: One edge to the top,
1: (laughs) so there's not, yeah. So it's London and Singapore, yeah. But
0: is is there this? Is I I think I've read or heard someone also speculating that it depends a little bit on the the makeup of the respondent group, that there are perhaps more Asian based,
1: absolutely, people
0: responding this time, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're referring probably to me telling you that, (laughs) Jewel,
0: really, yeah, Jesus. (laughs) This is how my mind processes information. I just noticed that I I hear it somewhere and then it's just like a fragmented map of information. Okay, That's
1: okay. It doesn't come from me at all. Uh, In fact, the point has been raised by uh, Michael Michael Ruff. Michael Ruff, am I pronouncing it correctly, guys, um, uh, on one of the online discussion forums? You can
0: just call him our uh, affectionate heckler. Exactly, our, our
1: affectionate heckler. And I'm mentioning this even, you know, um, because I, I mean, he raised it, a number of other people raised it. It's interesting that this year, uh, 43% of the respondents were from Asia. Oh, wow. And that's an 18% growth from the previous years. Um, and before, uh, the Europeans were the top percentage of respondents. And this year, I think they're only—if I look at the numbers again, I'll find them again at some point. Uh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Basically,
0: that sounds like one one bias is replaced by another bias.
1: Twenty-four percent. Yeah, twenty-four percent of people in Europe. Yeah. So you see, there's the, I think that's, that's, an, it's interesting. Why were there so many Asian respondents this year during the pandemic and the Europeans didn't respond? I don't know. Maybe because they were, they were already gone through, they were on second stage, third stage, everybody was feeling better about COVID yeah, we, we were right we in, were, in the middle of it. We were basically yeah, exactly. depressed. Yeah, exactly. So that, you know, kind of, I think um, if you look at the numbers in that sense, then you could see that London is probably still got a rise in the numbers, but Paris is actually at the same same level. Um, if you prorate it with the number of people from Europe who responded, I mean it doesn't. Um, you know, I, I don't really know what that means, honesty. Um, now, some other findings uh, about the institutions. Now, what are the top used institutions? Now there were 50, that's an interesting thing to mention is that there were 50 institutions mentioned altogether, fifty-five zero. So it wasn't just a couple of them. Um, and the top ones, guys?
0: ICC. SEAC. <laughs> Ciac. <laughs> I'm sure SEAC actually uh, got, a, got a promotion compared to earlier studies if right. we're going with the same theme. But it, Along in a no way, H-K. yeah, exactly. Yeah,
1: absolutely. So you're bang on. ICC number one, SEAC number two. Hong Kong International Arbitration Center, number three yeah. before the LCIA, hmm. um, and then CETAC.
0: Oh, that makes sense. Yeah,
1: ICSID comes after that, but ah. probably because and that would be one thing. I don't think there was detail on whether the practitioners were mostly commercial arbitration practitioners right. or treaty arbitration. And I practitioners. also, I'm guessing
0: that if the if the question is like which institution do you prefer. Like when you pick an institution, I mean, you as a, an investment treaty practitioner, generally, unless you're part of the like 2% yeah. of the respondents who work for a state, you don't draft the treaties and you you, right. you only pick what's available in the treaty. It's not like what, what do we put in the contract that can choose from everything the way you can with commercial arbitration.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so that would also probably explain the SCC comes afterwards, guys. Your um, Beloved institution, seven <laughs> percent of respondents answered SCC, and then it was followed by ICDR, PCA, and then LMAA. We have to talk about the maybe.
0: That's the maritime
1: one. Yeah, that's right. The mm-hmm. London Maritime Arbitration Association. Oh, yeah,
0: that's that's on the list of potential future segments and has been for a couple of years. For sure. la- yes, at some point it will be. I think we just have to find a maritime lawyer that we like that we can talk to.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and uh, we will talk about this because it's an important um, important part, face of the arbitration that we don't discuss about. Actually, ad hoc arbitration was mentioned as well. What preferred rules used for ad hoc arbitration? That was not surprising to me at all, actually. What do you think? The, Are there the preferred... any other? Yeah, the rule. <laughs> <laughs> well, you could also use the national laws, right. I guess, uh, agreement between the parties, you know, things like that, uh, you know, for the ad hoc. So yeah, of course, it is UNCITRAL. And then there's a mention of these other ones. Um, now, I'm going to quiz you on something else, which I thought uh, was uh, interesting. There were questions uh, related to, you know, the changes in technology and the pandemic and, and et cetera. So, What adaptations would make other institutions or rules more attractive to users?
2: That's a good question.
1: I'm not going to tell you all the options that you have. I just would like to hear your views to see if you're getting to that. So again, the question is what adaptations would make other institutions or rules more attractive to users?
0: No. Uh, and this is in the context of like all the challenges we are facing, or are we talking more generally? Like, could it be about cost awards or how to regulate compensation for tribunals, or are we thinking like virtual hearings? Right, like technology. And- yeah.
1: <laughs> all of these are in this. So you just have to. <laughs> I think you have to do it. You know, right now, if you were taking the survey in twenty twenty one,
0: I think the virtual hearing one, but that hasn't already most. Institutions, they've they've already sort of adapted so that you like the default is or it's much easier to get a virtual hearing. And, you know, it's made clear that the tribunal can do that. Right. Like the ICC. Yeah. Yeah. And there's no absolute right to a physical hearing. I think that is important to many parties.
1: Very, very important. That was the number one thing. So spot on. Administrative logistical support for virtual hearings.
0: Hmm.
1: Any other things?
0: I don't know if it's that's. I mean, I feel like I'm three years behind on this, but I, I know from conversations that that users really prefer that when institutions can uh, put some pressure on tribunals and you know uh, adapt the compensation to the tribunals depending on how they perform and put time pressure on and like you have to render the award within X and you'll get penalized if you don't. But I think yeah. that is also something that many institutions have already addressed. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, but that's also one of the things. So cost sanctions for delay by arbitrators. Twenty-one yeah. percent of the response that's have so responded that. Yeah,
2: putting it.
0: Away. No,
1: but that's <laughs> what well, you just said. It. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah, but
2: that's such a more specific adaptation than what you're saying, Joel. I mean, this is like cost sanctions against yeah. like, inefficient mm. arbitrators. That's quite has much more teeth
1: then, than than just a reputational damage. You mean? <laughs> Which if is already not- there. <laughs>
2: Well, no, yeah. I mean, obviously, efficiency concerns was something that in like 2018 was like the main discussion in like Mm -hmm. the conference circuit, um, how to make things more efficient. So I think that could have been an adaptation generally named, but cost sanctions for delays in awards is quite, quite specific.
1: Yeah. Well let me tell you the top five ones. The top the first one, um, adaptation like I mentioned was the administrative logistical support for virtual hearings. The second one was commitment to a more diverse pool of arbitrators.
0: Oh, of course. That's obvious. How
1: could you forget that guys? Is that not important to you about diversity? The third one was transparency of administrative process and decisions, such as selection of and challenges to arbitrators. Fourth Very one, pro- yeah. Fourth one, provision of expedited procedures. So again, to go back to your point, Brian, um, on you know costs of arbitration, mm. making things faster as well. And then uh, the fifth one was more tailored procedures for complex and multi-party arbitrations. Mm. So, yeah. It's, it's, it's
0: all familiar. Again, it feels like conversations we know exist and that have been on exactly. for a while.
1: Exactly. So we validate these results. We validate these results.
0: <laughs> yes. Based on our personal bias yes. data, this, this, this checks out.
1: <laughs> okay. One interesting, another one that I want to quiz you on. If you were a party or a council which of the following procedural options would you be willing to do without if oh. this would make your arbitration cheaper or faster? Hmm. I guess I have to tell you, uh, I'll, I'll tell it to you randomly. Um, bifurcation, post-hearing briefs, early case management conferences, in-person hearings, more than one round of written submissions, document production, oral hearings and procedural issues, Cross-examination, party-appointed experts, um, unlimited length of written submissions. I think I said them all now.
0: Yeah, those are great. Obvious ones. Post-hearing briefs and unlimited length of written submissions are things that I think even right now we can just get rid of in in the average case, at least.
1: (laughs) Brian, you agree? Do you have any others?
2: Yes, yes, yes. I agree with those. I, um, Alexei Moore actually gave a speech on the misuse of bifurcation and um, unreasonably delay of hearing. So I think yeah. that was definitely an important one.
1: Very good one. So bifurcation post briefs are not the top ones, guys. Oh. Hmm. No, they're not the top ones. The top three ones are, number one, unlimited length of written submissions. Yeah. I completely agree with that as well. Yeah.
0: Same. I've, I've seen in some cases recently I, that i run secretary, that the parties have agreed to limit... Uh, all the written submissions. And it's such a joy for everyone. The arguments are so much more focused uh, mm-hmm. on the tribunal side of where I'm working. It's much more, you know, it's just easier to survey the arguments and you know, getting 150 pages compared to 450 or whatever it can be at its most extreme. it's It makes all the difference in the world for everyone involved. And I think it's it's a very good thing.
1: Do you have a limit on footnotes too then?
0: Well, this is the... <laughs> it's, a, it's always a discussion. And, you know, how, how do you count pages? and
1: Yeah, exactly. Times New Roman. Yeah, is it
0: exactly. Double spacing, no double spacing. <laughs> yeah. Margins. But this generally comes by virtue of party agreement, so it depends on how sophisticated the parties are and, <laughs> and what their discussions are reflecting.
1: Right. Okay. Well, the number two thing is oral hearings and procedural issues <laughs> coming from someone who has a procedural hearing tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> I can understand that, uh, and the number three is document production.
0: Hmm. Mm, a lot of civil lawyers probably. Well, Asian right, right.
1: Asian civil lawyers. I don't know. <laughs> all, right. <laughs> all right. Well, I'm not going to go through all of them, but I'm just I'm going to continue quizzing you. Just maybe on one or two more. I'm conscious of time. I love quizzes. Okay. So, this one is what effect. Does diversity, I have to talk about diversity, across a panel of arbitrators have on your perception of their independence and impartiality? And you can say either most positive effect, positive effect, no effect at all, negative effect, most negative effect.
0: Wait, so how the fact that a... A tribunal is diverse. What effect does that have on your impression of their impartiality?
1: That's correct. Yeah,
0: and independence? on your
1: perception of their independence and impartiality.
2: That's a very good question. They're asking us to check our biases. Yeah. Basically. I check mm-hmm. my biases at the door, so I uh, you know, <laughs> I had no effect. No effect.
1: So you would say no effect at all, OK?
2: <laughs> no, 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 no. I would say uh, a great effect.
1: So most positive effect or positive effect?
0: Positive. I said positive for me. Yeah. I, I I never okay. go all the way on these <laughs> <Yeah. burpees. laughs> The Swedish <That's> temperament.
1: Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, the the 37% which was the majority of respondents responded no effect at all. Wow. I diversity is just a good in itself and it's not, you know, it's not related to the outcome of decision dah, 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 dah. that's what I mean most the, I think the that's people,
0: the that's the correct or the the ideal answer.
1: Correct. Well, it's it's yeah, it's the theory that is good in itself. But why is it a good in itself? Because it does good, right? And why does it do good? Because <laughs> it yeah, has. But a-
0: I don't. I don't think it should. I it, it it makes me reflect on my own biases because I I tend to assume that a more diverse setup is more likely to, or less likely to have problems with independence and impartiality if you put it that way. But that's not necessarily true. Like a a, a diverse tribunal can be as problematic as a non-diverse tribunal. Well,
2: that's the problem with the question because we don't assess independence and impartiality tribunal-wide. We assess it by the independent arbitrator. So to ask how you see, because where's the dependency? Is it within each other? You can't be, Mm. I mean, like counsel's relationship with an arbitrator is not tempered by the diversity of the other right. co-arbit, I mean, I object.
1: <laughs> you object. Okay. Well, don't, don't worry. The second, um, the, the second most, um, you know, popular answer was the one you gave us, which was, um, uh, positive effect. And then it was most positive effect. So it it's in between the no effect at all and positive effect. So that was, that was interesting. The diversity thing. um, also, and I'm not gonna you know, um, quiz you on that, but you'd, you'd be, I think, not surprised to hear that when there was a question, it said, do you agree with the statement that progress has been made in the following aspects of diversity? And they had uh, put gender diversity, geographic diversity, age diversity, cultural diversity, and ethnic diversity. And while the majority response said that there has been significant progress, Uh, with respect to gender diversity, that wasn't the case for ethnic diversity, for example.
0: Completely confirming what you have been saying every episode all throughout the season. (laughs) Um,
1: Okay, now let's move on, uh, because I know we're uh, short on time on another big topic, which was the use of technology, use of technology. Uh, which of course has been used more and more. during uh, this pandemic. So, one question, a quiz now. In general, if you had a scheduled in-person hearing that could no longer be held in person at that time, would you rather proceed at the scheduled time as a virtual hearing, postpone the hearing until it could be held in person, or proceed with an award on the basis of documents only?
0: Proceed remotely on the scheduled hearing. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with that one.
1: Yeah, that's that's what 80 percent of people said proceed at the scheduled time as a virtual hearing yeah you always have the objectors to that but
0: yeah and it's also always the lawyerly it depends you know if you have very complicated cross-examinations four different languages and like witnesses from all over the world and you're spread out in every time zone maybe Mm -hmm. it's not optimal but in the vast majority of cases it shouldn't be any issue whatsoever to do it in
1: yeah, which brings me to the other question of what are the main disadvantages of virtual hearings?
2: <laughs> Time zones.
1: Time zones. That's a good one. <laughs> I'm struggling with that right now. Yeah, very true. I mean, Ryan. the main
2: one is ex- like examine, witness and expert examination and the ability to, you know, properly assess the verbal, non- nonverbal cues of, of yeah. a witness and expert.
1: Perfect. You guys, you and also like,
0: team communication. I think that's been an issue I, I've heard, like communicating in between, you know, council within the council team witnesses. and.
1: Yeah. It's like you have the survey under your eyes, guys. The top one was difficulty of accommodating multiple arts, disparate time zones. Uh, and same, actually, harder for council teams and clients to confer during hearing sessions. Boom. That's it, Jill. Yeah. And then, of course, more difficult to control witnesses and assess their credibility. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you
0: can just Queen Mary and White in case, if you're listening. Next time, just-
1: Just, just quiz
2: us. Combinary Yeah, the three point. of us.
1: <laughs> and then, and then the, the top, the fourth one, was technical malfunctions and limitations, including oh. inequality of access to particular and reliable technology. That's a good one, I think. It really is, yeah. 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 So that was a good one. Maybe a last one. Sorry that I'm letting you go, I promise. What would make you more likely to choose a virtual rather than in-person format for hearings post-COVID-19? Post-COVID-19.
2: Cost. hmm yeah. Time zone. Cost? Time zone. Time
1: zone. Well, I know some people would not be happy with your responses. Did you forget the obvious one? Mm,
0: arbitrators who wanted get cocktails you guys are
1: terrible lucy <laughs> terrible. greenwood lucy greenwood is not oh, going to be oh, happy of
2: course of course <laughs> the environment
1: well you know what your perfect representation of what was answered because the
2: Again?
0: first
1: one yes the first one was time and costs um actually no you haven't mentioned the second one the second one is increased confidence and familiarity with virtual hearings as a result of recent experience That's a weird
0: one. Mm. Um, Yeah, that's true.
1: Yeah. Okay. So you would more likely go ahead because you've done a few now, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, The third one was more reliable and secure technology. The security of the technology is also a good one. Um, And environmental sustainability only came almost the second to last. Just yeah. before more harmonization of ethical standards. So it's not a priority. That's not why people would go to virtual hearings.
2: Oh, that ethical standard ones is interesting.
1: Yeah. More harmonization of ethical standards. Yeah. So there you go. Um, there's Great. Well, the, this yeah. actually
2: like uh, segues us into happy fun time. Um, yes. Let's do it. With more updates and, and developments. So yes, let's go on. Our final happy fun time of the season um, is a year in review, developments, and uh, innovations that have happened over the year. There have been a lot of lists and uh, discussions about what has been the best during the pandemic and what has been the shining light in the abyss of depression during the pandemic. So, in the legal shining light, um, I have some things that I've noted down and I'd be happy for you guys to interject, um, but uh, any, any issues or any decisions or innovations or developments that you guys have noted since, um, or I, I guess I could start just to, to get the ball rolling. I think we've seen a lot of developments focused on arbitrators. Um, We had the draft code of conduct um, for Exeter and Citral. I think that was a a very big um, development. But also there was um, a lot of decisions related to um, the disclosure of uh, arbitrator involvement. We have um, a tweet that caused concern from... Franco Frattini in a Cass Award. I don't know if you guys heard of this. I just- We did, it.
0: and I think I mentioned it sort of not very well researched in a previous episode.
2: I can't remember the context now. Well, oh, I think it was it? having to do with the, was it the social media policy of arbitrary? Yeah, right,
0: exactly.
1: exactly. I think so, yeah.
2: Right. So yes, he um, tweeted uh, showing bias towards the, um, Against, I would say, bias against um, the Chinese. Um, and that specific cast award had to do with a Chinese athlete. So um, that award was set aside. Um, so there is a lot of, um, you know, spotlight on tribunal conduct. Um, mm. So I think that that is one development that I have noted. That's a
0: good point. And it dovetails with another thing that I've been thinking about, which is also that it feels like arbitrated research for appointments there's, there's rights taken in the last year or so we have a lot of databases now mm-hmm. with io with reporter or uh, esteemed sponsor uh, which by the way have added place of arbitration i don't know if you saw this to their research tool now which is searching for awards you can filter for the place of arbitration in treaty cases which i, I happen to do all the time because i oh really i like that but they also have a good feature for arbitrary research and we have other tools like use mundi has a very big database mm-hmm. There's Arbitrator Intelligence, Catherine Nordger's project that has been sort of part of a discussion in the community lately, mm-hmm. which we maybe don't have time to go into, but they have finally launched as a commercial venture, It started as sort of a an NGO, a save the world thing, and now they are on the market and you can pay for reports from them. That's a recent feature as well. I don't know to what extent it has actually changed the practice of researching arbitrator appointments, but we see a lot of services catering to that kind of market that i don't think we had just two three four years ago to the same extent you're absolutely right
1: so uh, sorry are you saying that because there's more database and there's more challenges
0: no i'm saying that there are just more people right like services for this
1: oh to to search for that okay
0: yeah exactly and i i maybe this would be an interesting that's a research project, actually, to, to look into whether there are more challenges and, and also how the appointment process has changed mm-hmm. from the fact that we now have much more data. What used to be a phone call seven years ago mm-hmm. is now, at least you, you, if you want to, there's a whole lot of information out there on potential or existing arbitrators. In the
2: well, case. we have our previous podcast guests, Leonor uh, Diaz-Cordova and Natalie Hall, who discussed um, AI and choosing arbitrators and the due diligence there. So, right. so that's, that's
0: a good like recent development, looking into the the black box of appointing and challenging arbitrators. Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
2: Um, another development, and I don't want to harp on diversity, um, too much since we have discussed it already, but there was a, um, the 2021 disputes index released from Rochier, um, talks about, um, the, the one main highlight that has been taken from it is how, um, diversity impacts the choice of firm for clients. So whether clients look to a diversity within the law firm on how they choose, mm-hmm. um, but there was a lot of. Um, if you actually look into that disputes index released by Roche, there's some even more interesting uh, answers that to be taken from that. Um, the respondents for that index are only Nordic uh, law firms, so law firms coming from Nordic countries and individuals coming from the Nordic countries, um, and men responded that. And on on various questions having to do with diversity, men said diversity was not as impactful um, for for certain decisions than women. So women see diversity as more of an issue than men, which mm, I think not it's... not even Nordic men might might my... not
1: even Nordic not men.
2: even Nordic men. <laughs> so Nordic.
1: think about the other men.
2: <laughs> yes, and and those responses were noticeably lower for arbitrators as well. So that the the um the need for a diverse arbitrator or diversity within arbitral tribunal was uh, noticeably lower from male respondents than female respondents, which I thought was interesting um, and indicative. But there was also, um, you have Claudia Solomon uh, appointed to the ICC court president. Um, So there's a diversity section there. The dis, um, the um, arbitration institution in Germany, they had 53.3% appointments of female arbitrators and then ICA released its um, inclusion and diversity policy after, I would like to say, after we got them at ICA Sydney and made them sign the pledge. But <laughs> I won't uh, put all of that on. Well us. done, guys.
1: <laughs> and also, there's been the recent all-female ICSID arbitra- arbitration tribunal yes. that was constituted. The very, very first one. There was an hoc committee, an exit one. Now there's an exit arbitral tribunal one. And there's been, I understand, previous also tribunals in both in commercial and investment uh that were all female um but this one was i, I really like this the recent example because it was not the, the parties nominated all arbitrators that's big deal
2: that is a big deal
1: yeah big Agreed.
2: deal and i would yeah. like to note while we're on the issue of diversity and i i have to i do have to note that this um some of these uh highlights were coming from the gar awards um the nominations that came out but noticeably absent from the discussion of equal representation and arbitration in those awards is ethnic diversity. So there's, I think, about eight to ten of them all relate to gender. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there is a gap of that we really, uh, maybe it's indicative that there isn't enough development in ethnic diversity. Yeah, but, very good point. But um, it's not just gender, so... Speaking of the the
0: GAR uh, short lists for the GAR awards, I noticed something, and this is uh, another uh, analysis and I, I know I am biased because I tend to be interested in domestic court and their interaction with arbitration. but the list for most important decision, the short list, it's the vast majority of those listed decisions are court decisions. I noticed, and partly that's because in commercial arbitration of course not not all awards are made public. That's mm-hmm. very true. Mm-hmm. But there are a lot, and even including in investment treaty arbitration, and I'm working on the outlines now of, a, of an article following up on my book on, on domestic courts and investment treaty arbitration. And it's like every week there's news about yeah. domestic courts, typically in Paris or in Geneva, <laughs> some in Stockholm, some in the U.S., some in Singapore, doing something unexpected a novel in the challenges challenge stage of of a uh, treaty arbitration like coming up with something and we can go through the like major set-asides in France and of, of big awards but there's also been non-set-asides that have been relevant for wider issues of investment law the yeah. mm-hmm. EU termination treaty was uh, discussed by by the Swiss uh, federal tribunal we have Paris court allowing new jurisdictional arguments uh, at the um, at the post award stage in, in France and the same court, did we ever talk about this? The PCA Secretary General's role in the OIC arbitration? I don't think. I think we mentioned
1: that. it. We mentioned it as a question mark before even that uh, that w- what you're about to refer to oh, yeah. happened. I think, yeah. Because
0: then, the, I mean, that's a whole thing that we also don't really have to time to go into now. But essentially, the the, the Paris courts set aside that award because the tribunal had been improperly constituted when the PCA mm-hmm. Secretary General stepped in to mm-hmm. appoint an arbitrator, But also in commercial arbitration, of course, we've had two major decisions in in the London courts that we've talked about. Uh, that was must have been in fall, right, with the Enca versus Chubb and Halliburton yeah. versus Chubb. Like they, they, they were both very, very big mm-hmm. decisions, and they were not tribunal decisions. They were court decisions. It feels like many of the arbitral developments in both commercial and treaty arbitration are sort of driven by domestic courts and not arbitral tribunals recently.
3: Mm
0: -hmm. Absolutely. That's a great point.
1: Do you mention challenge and setting aside and there, are they in this list, are there some decisions related to enforcement as well?
0: Yeah. um, On the GAR list, I think there was one, one of the um, uh, Spanish, probably right. The renewables ECT cases uh, in, Mm -hmm. in Australia.
1: Right.
0: Okay. And that cause award that Brian mentioned that was set mm-hmm. aside uh, was also mentioned. Uh, that's not, I guess, an enforcement case. Um, what is not here is the the enforcement. That's the the Miracle case, which was also in London. Yeah,
1: of course. The, yeah. Yes. The
0: exit true. enforcement rules interpreted by the UK Supreme Court. Maybe that was not the last year. I can't remember. Mm-hmm. Time flies. But it just goes to show the general trend that we look to domestic courts for some cutting edge. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: (laughs) And for more information on that, Joel's book. (laughs) 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 Um, Okay, another one that I think to to, um, pivot from what uh, Sadia was saying earlier about um, environment and how it's gonna affect our um, industry after COVID-19. I think it is a discussion that um, law firms are having and even individuals are having about how what we've learned during the pandemic can actually um, hang over into the industry practice afterwards. Um, And some firms, including Freshfields, CMS, and Herbert Smith, have um, taken on some programs to uh, have offsetting their carbon footprint due to business travel. um, Or, uh, yes, or Freshfields in particular, has um, had a few goals within the firm. So they want to decrease business travel by 30% um, by 2025. And they want their offices to be powered by renewable electricity by 2030, 100% powered by renewable electricity. Um, I think travel is is one of the big things that we're going to see a, a difference in. I think we were all part of meetings that didn't need to happen, but there were 10 lawyers flying in from different jurisdictions to sit in a room and have a meeting. I think those types of things will be um, sense-checked from an environmental point of view. Um, so I think we'll be seeing that. But one thing I want to talk, what just briefly mention is, um, and this is because we do love the SEC, <laughs> is the SEC platform. And they did give access, free access to their platform to parties during the pandemic. Um, for ad hoc cases, but um, the SCC platform, I just gave a, a talk on this to a university in Guadalajara. And I didn't even know that I haven't done an SEC case in a couple of years. So I didn't know about the platform. And it's basically what ICSID uses for Box, uh, or they used to use Box, um, these kind of like uploading third-party databases where you can have access to all the materials. and But the SCC platform takes it a bit further because you have everything all in one one space, which is deadlines that you need to observe, and and all the documents, document production can happen through the platform. Um, I think that you know, long ago is the time where we're going to attach documents to emails when we submit. Um, Files and you have like I remember filing my first filing and it was like 18 emails in a row with like because the capacity of each email Mm -hmm. wasn't big enough. So I think that is a good technological innovation. I
0: I agree, and I I am working as secretary on a few SEC cases, and it's really nice as the secretary as well because it takes away the onus on me on keeping the case file in like a separate filing system that I know in case anyone you know in case the award is challenged a year from now they're going to come to me and ask for all the files. I have to keep a meticulous record. With the ssc platform there's like a a secure cloud-based record that the relevant parties uh, and entities have access to which is really nice but still in my experience at least for now it might be sort of a transition especially senior members like lead counsel arbitrator types they also want the key submissions emailed they don't want to log in to a system and look through filings because they are not technologically proficient enough and there's always going to be someone Really? 70 plus. Yeah, because then, you know, you need a password and you need to navigate like, um, the, the trees of the documents. But you
1: designate someone in your team to do that for you. So you just have <laughs> someone who's in charge of documents. Yeah.
0: Yes. But if you're, you know, co-arbitrator, Mr. Whatever, 77 right. years old, maybe you don't have that person. And and maybe
1: you pre- should not be appointed.
2: <laughs> if you can't put in a password, you shouldn't be an arbitrator.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh
2: well, that, th- those are the developments I've noticed. I don't know if you guys um, have anything else, but there, there has been a lot for, for a world that's been locked down. We've definitely surfaced as the cockroaches of, of the world and have lived <laughs> on to, to move the, the field forward a bit.
0: We're taking a break, though, I guess. now we haven't really talked. We are just all exhausted from, from a, a year in lockdown and from recording in lockdown, maybe... Yeah. Hopefully, fingers crossed, we'll all be vaccinated and alive uh, in like September when we start again and we can do this in person. Yes, imagine. could you imagine?
1: It would be really nice to do it in person because before we never managed even pre-COVID times. We It was rare that we all three of us together because Joel, you were not in the UK.
0: Yes, but now
1: we are. But now you are <laughs> and still we still gonna... can't do it. Yeah, no, hopefully we'll be able to do it. That'd be nice. But
2: that's a good uh, sign-off message. And I want to give a shout out to Manuel Casas who brought my attention to this uh, Financial Times article by Tim Hayward that... Um, Emphasizes natural conviviality, which is kind of the emphasis that will begin to replace on being together um, and finding context to chat, flirt, exchange gossip, share stories, and maybe get a little messy. Oh,
1: yes. Ah, lovely. I can't (laughs) wait for that.
0: Business lunch and (laughs) conferences and
2: cocktails and oh. Yes. Skipping work for a conference and then making the decision with way through. I'm not going to go back. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you guys. It's been, it's been such a beacon of hope this podcast throughout the pandemic. So um, I thank you both for participating and helping us yes, Thank you. You've kept
1: I, me sane. I was going to say the same. Thank you guys for making this happen. And God knows it, it's, you know, we've, it, it's even though we've been, uh, you know, remote, uh, remote working it's not easy to coordinate agendas and we've done it so well done guys it's been great
0: with some able assistance of course by yes Jan of who's, who's running the podcast behind the scenes and our researchers callum and i don't know how much we actually ended up using dimitri's research because the last two episodes we've been kind of winging it based on our own he
1: research. has helped he has helped in the previous <laughs> he episode yeah yeah
0: initially absolutely And he's, if he hasn't it's not his fault it's our fault for not preparing <laughs>
2: Thank you, team. Thank you, Jan. Thank you, Dimitri. Thank you, Thank you, Luke Peterson and
0: IA Reporter for for supporting us. And thank you, everyone who's been emailing and and tweeting and interacting with us. That's what makes this the fun enterprise that it is. What do you say, Brian? The beacon in the cave or whatever? Yes. (laughs) The beacon of
2: hope, (laughs) the shining light, the stalwart.
1: All right. Bye, guys.
2: Until next time, see you at season six.
1: Bye.